Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning to open God's Word and to worship together. We'll be continuing, of course, in our Exodus series. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verse 16 today. And if you could join me now, if you're able to stand as we read this verse, please do so. Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious, holy, infallible word, which is the anchor to our souls. It is the truth upon which we stand. It is the word that we seek. It is what we need for our souls. We pray now that by the grace of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you would communicate your word to us in a powerful and meaningful way that would transform us little by little into your image. We desire to no longer look like ourselves, but to look like Christ. Lord, we're here for that purpose. So we commit ourselves to you afresh, that your work would be done. Let your work be done through me and in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We call this message this morning, The Perils of Perjury. And I think as we continue with our study of the Ten Commandments, of the Decalogue, we have encountered in the last several weeks the uh, horizontal dynamic of how the commandments impact the world around us and how what we do with our obedience to Christ impacts our relationships. We first saw chiefly the vertical dimension of the nature of the Decalogue in our relationship to Christ, the relationship to God, and now we have been looking at the horizontal dynamic, if you like to put it in those categories, of our relationship to one another. So we see that all of these sins of the latter degree are sins against other people, sins against ourselves, sins against our body. And nothing changes here in the ninth commandment as we look at the 16th verse of Exodus 20. But I think perhaps this morning as we gather to study this commandment, we would be prone to excuse ourselves of guilt this morning before the trial reaches a verdict. We may see the ninth commandment as instructive for a court of law and perhaps a lawsuit case, and it certainly is, as we'll see, but maybe not as much help in our day-to-day lives. We may be tempted to relegate this commandment to the civil and legal dimensions in which we commonly assume it operates and yet miss altogether the far-reaching implications it has for our lives, our homes, our churches, and our world. So I pray we don't make that mistake this morning. None of us in the room here would be comfortable with admitting about ourselves that we're liars. None of us would certainly want to hear that about ourselves, that we are liars. And in no way, shape, or form am I accusing you of lying, but God is. God is. God is accusing us, as this word comes to us this morning, not necessarily of active lying, but of the reality of lying in our life. For as you look at this commandment, you could translate it simply as, you shall not lie. But of course, the the implications of it are deeper than that. And we'll look firstly at the implications. We'll look at the commandment itself. And then I want to make application into a few different spheres of our life where this commandment really bears itself out, either for good or for bad. As many of us know, we are living in a time where the nasty effects of our collective societal rejection of this commandment is really in full view. We've even seen in recent time certain movements like the hashtag MeToo movement rise to power and in some cases truly bring about justice to crimes done in secret. Yet it has also become a weapon in the hands of many to shift power and to become a tool of assassination for those seeking to tear down power dynamics and social hierarchies. Furthermore, we see in our media constantly the rancid effects of the sin of false testimony, as it seems today that the world is against particularly straight, white, conservative men and women. And they are guilty until proven innocent by much of mainstream society. The rise of cancel culture 
has only accentuated this cancer, as everyone that speaks an opinion or truth contrary to the popular sentiment is liable to be stripped of their platform, their reputation dragged through the mud, and they'll be tarred and feathered by the society at large. And though you may not be feeling the effects of this acutely yourself, we all might be, in a sense, flying under the social radar of these highlighted symptoms. We are living in such a time. We are living in a time where uh, slander and gossip and false witness could be at an all-time high in our collective society. It would seem that no one is safe from the blistering social, political, and economic firestorm that is sure to come upon anyone, anyone, who stands for truth and sound judgment. Yet the ninth commandment doesn't come only to the left, and it doesn't come only to the right, and it doesn't come only to those in a court of law, but it comes to us this morning in the courts of God, sitting in the house of the Lord. This is where the commandment comes. And judgment must begin with the house of God. Amen? Judgment must begin with us. Indeed, the, the price of truth is that it will cost us our lives. The price of truth is that it will cost us our lives. And I think Psalm 51, 5 through 6, 6 is instructive here as we jump into this. When the psalmist says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I loved our call to worship this morning because he picks up again in verse 17 and when he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Micah 6.8 doubles down on this reality when it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So if we are going to be a people that do justice, that love kindness, that walk humbly with our God, we need to look at what Scripture has to say regarding the ninth commandment within these categories, and this is where we'll go this morning. We have to look at what it says about our hearts. For just like when we break any of the commandments, it's always an inside job. It's always a heart issue. Secondly, we must look at our homes, for a house divided cannot stand, and if we have the effects of the sin of the ninth commandment running throughout our homes, we will also bring that dysfunction into the church. The third realm then, consequently, is the church, the house of God, which is comprised of homes. How do we live in truth and handle issues in the church, considering the weight of the ninth commandment? And then lastly, how do we push it out into the world? considering how we herald the gospel and what kind of ambassadors we are called to be amid a crooked and perverted generation. So first our hearts, then our homes, then the house of God, then our heralding of the gospel is where we're going today by God's grace. So let's dive into the ninth commandment itself and deal with what the text actually says about it. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I think a definition of terms here might be helpful. False witness means intentionally providing, misleading, or incorrect statements in official or legal situations. Yet the implications of this definition go beyond merely the court of law, and they would share a strong relationship, a symbiotic relationship, to gossip and slander. So I want to define those as well. Gossip is insubstantial information, frequently not factual, in leading to groundless fears. And slander is communicating false and negative claims about another person would be backbiting, character assassination, scandal, and whispering. So these three categories or definitions comprise the sin, essentially, of the ninth commandment. It is the sin of the mouth. It is the sin of the lips. It is the sin, as the Bible would describe it, of evil speech. And I don't know how much you have studied evil speech in the Bible. We, we tend to kind of acknowledge and assent to the reality that words matter. We should certainly understand that as people of the book, that words certainly matter. Words are not neutral. 
as the cliche goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me, is fundamentally not true. Words hurt often more than sticks and stones. So we understand that words matter, and sins of the mouth are egregious and damaging and painful to both receive, and they bear a bitter harvest when we plant them. So let's look at this commandment and break it down in its straightforwardness when it says you shall not bear I think we do well to stop there because as we've been looking at all of the commandments we both see a negative connotation of the commandment a negative application and then a positive application so we're seeking to develop the negative aspect of this ninth commandment and then we're going to seek to apply it positively so the negative aspect is you shall not bear the word bear in the Hebrew has a couple significant meanings that correlate to specific actions. It first means that you heed and pay attention to falsehood. You entertain it. You give it a hearing. So someone comes to you with a little bit of lie or a potential lie or a hypothetical lie or, or something on somebody else, some dirt on someone else. And, and the first thing you do is you hang out with it, you entertain it, you give it a hearing, you give it a, you, you let falsehood sort of run its mouth. This is the first step towards sinning in the ninth commandment is that we give falsehood a hearing. This is the first aspect of the sin. Of course, what you do with the falsehood is then the second because then it means from both Giving the falsehood a hearing, you then begin to speak, defile, hurt, ravish, and browbeat your neighbor with the falsehood that you have chosen to carry as a weapon. So you can think of you shall not bear as carrying arms. You can think of it in that capacity even. As we are a carrying, loving church, we are all about the Second Amendment. You can think of the damage of words as someone carrying a weapon on their side. When you give a falsehood a foothold in your life, you're arming the weapon. You're putting bullets in the magazine and you're slamming it into the chamber. This is what we are doing when we are breaking the ninth commandment. When we are bearing false witness, we are carrying a weapon loaded for damage. We are holding on to a loaded gun. And instead of disarming and neutralizing the threat, we're pocketing it, we're aiming it, we're firing it. This is the weightiness of you shall not bear. Well, what is it that we should not bear? Of course, false witness, false testimony against your neighbor. So again, you're loading the weapon, you're aiming the weapon, and you're pulling the trigger. So it's a series of actions, it's a series of steps to breaking the ninth commandment. We don't do it all at once. It doesn't often manifest itself quickly. But in this systematic way, we are carrying, we are loaded, and we are deadly. So this is the damaging effects of falsehood. And many of us in this room have, have certainly felt the weight, the damage, the wounding of an armed falsehood spoken towards us, spoken by us, and certainly we know its effects well in our own members. It's a very great damage that can happen when someone rips your reputation to shreds, attacks your character, comes at you in a savage manner, and all the more evil is when we do it to others. When we choose to arm the weapon, to aim it, and to pull the trigger, before we have biblically understood how to handle accusation and how to handle situations that need to be confronted, we often go about it the way that our flesh has taught us to go about it, which is shoot first and ask questions later. Everyone is guilty before they're proven innocent. And this is the same nature in which our society functions. Everyone is guilty until proven innocent. And the weightiness of the ninth commandment is that we would have a posture that doesn't wink at real guilt, that doesn't exempt real sin, but believes the best about people. 
that considers them innocent until proven guilty, that has a judicious way of approaching reality and a discerning way and a wise way of approaching situations where the potential for a loaded firearm to do real damage is very present. So this is a sin of the mouth that is so common, we would almost dismiss it as being impossible to regulate. Kind of like the Second Amendment. We're always trying to amend gun control because we're, we're saying that the weapon is the cause. No, the human heart is the cause, right? It's not the people carrying, it's not the weapon carried by the people, it's the people carrying the weapon. It's the same is true with the Ninth Commandment. Words themselves are not fundamentally the problem, it's the people with the words. It's the heart behind what's being said. Of course, we're going to isolate that and build on that. Proverbs 18.8 is very helpful here when it says that the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Man, what an apt description. We love naturally to listen to gossip and slander. We, we, we drink it in. Then after feasting on the morsel, we fan it into a firestorm and use it to burn down our neighbor's house. Proverbs 26, 17 through 22 reaffirms this and builds upon it, and I want to read it to you. Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. And again, he repeats the proverb, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. So we have to reckon with the reality of what's going on internally when we deal with the ninth commandment. We are a people prone, even in the church, to carry loaded weapons and shoot them irresponsibly. And often we shoot our own. Often we kill our own. We wound our own. We maim our own. And instead of doing good to the household of faith, we do evil to the household of faith. Certainly, sometimes, unintentionally, but nonetheless, we are culpable in breaking this commandment more often than we'd like to admit. We entertain lies. We clothe ourselves with falsehood. We give it a hearing, we drink it down, we put a bullet in the chamber, and we shoot before we ask questions. So friends, we should not be this kind of people. And question for us is, does this describe you? Do you meddle? When the juicy little piece of tender, slow-cooked slander and gossip comes your way, do you throw a log on the fire, or do you drown it in cold truth-telling? and a refusal to entertain lies. This is hard work. This is difficult. When that little bit of something that suits your fancy comes along about your neighbor, about your friend, about your pastor, about a fellow church member, even if there's a smidget of truth to it, do you throw a log on the fire? Do you fan it into something more than it is? Or do you say, you know what, let me stop you right there. What we're doing right now is sinful. What we're about to do is worse. What we could do is even worse. Let's halt it in its tracks. It takes a brave soul, does it not, to stop in the moment of happening gossip and slander, to be the guy or to be the gal that sits there in a group of friends surrounded by influence and peer pressure and say, you know what, what we're doing is, is either borderline sinful or straight up sinful. We need to stop right now. Because not only are we defaming someone's character, not only are we dragging them through the mud, but we're loading a weapon that could do far more damage than we could possibly think or imagine. That's why Ezekiel 23 comes to the rescue here in verses 1 through 3 and in 6 and 7 of the same chapter, just a couple pages over. When God commands his people that you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. 
and you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you, be, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And then he says in verse 6 of the same chapter, this is the heart of it, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. This is where it gets a little scary. For I, the Lord, will not acquit the wicked. I will not acquit the wicked. We need to have a posture of running from gossip and slander. Now, we're going to see the positive implications of this because this does not mean or disqualify the need to run towards conflict. Okay? There can be a passive approach to this that's not helpful. We'll unpack that later. This does not mean we retreat or that we stay quiet or that we never speak up or use our voice. Quite the contrary. We're going to see in the positive application that that's exactly what we should do. But here we need to run from this kind of perversion of justice, this kind of culture in which we live where the social pressure and the normative pattern and the way in which the world works is actually to pervert justice, to actually be partial, to actually hate your neighbor, and to actually consider him guilty until he's proven innocent. And if he's proven innocent, he still might be guilty because you hate him. So when God says, I will not acquit the wicked, what does he mean by that? I think there's some really powerful implications to that, and we're going to unpack it through a couple examples in the Word of God that I think are really instructive for us uh, to see the damaging effects of the sin of the ninth commandment, but also how it comes back to bite the person who fires the weapon. So the first example we have is in 1 Kings chapter 21. If you would quickly turn there, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to Unpack it briefly. First Kings 21, we see the account of Ahab, the wicked king, where he, in verse 1, I'm just going to read rather fast, but I want us to get a picture of what's going on here. In verse 1, it says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and would eat no food. Ahab has some real issues, okay? Some real issues. He's, he's in the dumps of depression. He's in the dumps of jealousy, the dumps of envy, all of the above. And this is what's even worse. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth, Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. The men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it is written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth at the head of the people. They set two worthless men, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And of course, as the law says elsewhere, and as Jesus affirms that only on the evidence of two or three witnesses can a charge be confirmed, they have two witnesses, though they're false, they're nonetheless two witnesses. They act upon the law, and they take him outside and stone him to death. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. 
As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. We move forward, and we see Elijah, the pesky prophet, come upon the scene yet again. And if you thought what he did in 1 Kings 18 was tough, he gets even harder here. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who was in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, You have killed and also taken possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. Oh, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Now initially Ahab repents, but ultimately the next chapter, he's killed in battle by an arrow. The blood flows into the bottom of his chariot and the dogs lick it up from the bottom of his chariot. And then Jezebel, later on, God raises up the prophet Jehu, who is quite a character. He slays all 70 sons of Ahab in a single day in fulfilling the Lord's word. And then he tells Jezebel's two eunuch servants to throw her off out the window, upon which she falls to her death, and the dogs eat her the next morning. So in both cases, the sin of the ninth commandment is not just a minor sin. It's a sin the Lord hates. It's a sin more damaging than that because it comes back upon us often like it did on Ahab and Jezebel. Words are not cheap, though we often use them cheaply. Words have great weight. Words have great power. And we should learn the lesson of Ahab and Jezebel. The second example that's most notable is, of course, we won't turn there, but in the book of Esther, where you have Haman, the great enemy of the Jews, hates Mordecai with a passion, constructs a great scheme to get rid of the entire nation of Jews. Uh, and, of course, Esther used of God to discern the scheme through Mordecai and to intervene, to stand in the gap. But we know from the story there, and if you know the book of Esther, Morde uh, Haman builds a gallows for Mordecai upon which he intended to hang the man. And as Haman is caught within his own plot, he ends up dying on the same gallows he built for Mordecai. This is the nature when God says, I will repay the wicked for the sin of the ninth commandment. God is not kidding. And friends, we have to be so careful that we don't incur real judgment and discipline upon our own heads for the foolish things that we say about others, the falsehoods that we are willing to feast upon, the lies that we are willing to entertain, the bullet in the loaded gun that will so quickly, if we're not careful, kill the very ones we are called to love. This is the lesson of the ninth commandment. Truly, we see the words of Jesus come into clear view in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, when he says, Judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Very clearly, Jesus says, look, you're going to live and die by the same standard you use on others. God doesn't have a double standard. God isn't partial. If you judge your neighbor with this kind of level, God is going to apply that level to you. Now, of course, to qualify this, this does not mean that we check our discernment at the door, never judge. But the word of God is also clear elsewhere that we are right to judge first ourselves, which is the only way we can rightly judge others. And of course, we're to judge those in the church. Judgment must begin with the house of God. 
That requires something that we don't inherently possess if we're going to do this right. It requires wisdom from above. As James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The issue is that we are often not honest about what drives our judgments. Many people think, and you hear this in church all the time, if you've been around, that they have the gift of discernment. You ever hear that? Someone say, I have the gift of discernment. And all they really have is a knack for uncovering others' sins. Congratulations. Here's the award. Everyone has that gift. Everyone can see other people's sins better than we can see our own. It's the human condition. But God's wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness So in order to deal with the root problem of the ninth commandment, we must deal first with our heart. So we must deal then with our defilement and not blame it on others. We have to reckon with our own jealousy, our own selfish ambition, our own arrogance, our own hatred of our neighbor, our own jealousy over his stuff, our own jealousy over his reputation, over his status, over his things. We have to reckon with this sin of the heart. And we can't blame it on other people. We can't say, well, if he just treated me different, if Mordecai just bowed down, we wouldn't be building a gallows. Jesus makes it real clear in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, for what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, Theft, false witnesses, and slander. These are what defile a person. So we see clearly, brothers and sisters, that the sin of this ninth commandment is not someone else's problem but mine. The gossip at your work does not make you a gossiper. The slander that gets thrown around isn't the reason you slander. You slander, I slander, and bear false witness because of the defilement inside me. Because we are living in the passions of our flesh, and we refuse to mortify them. Proverbs 18, 20 through 21 says this interesting and powerful truth. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. That's interesting. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life, this is an underlier, Underliner, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Friends, we have to be, we have to learn the value and the power and the life-giving potential of the tongue. Often we are very immature in this particular arena, and it's often a sin that we are willing to commit faster than other sins. We are much more prone to sin with our mouth than we are to sin, perhaps, with our body. We're much more likely, perhaps, to tear down our neighbor with words than to sleep with their spouse in body. The sin is all the same. We must learn that the fruit of a man's mouth, by the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. This is so fascinating because the, the scales get inverted here where we think it's often the opposite, that because my stomach isn't satisfied, I need to get it with the fruit of my mouth. God says, no, by the fruit of your mouth, your stomach will be satisfied. If you refrain from using evil speech, you will actually be satisfied at the end of that. Instead of craving what you don't have in killing people with your words to get it. 
So death and life are indeed in the power of the tongue. So question for us in application, what is the fruit you are tasting in your life today? Is the fruit of righteousness a harvest that is the result of this peaceable sowing that James 3.18 talks about? Oftentimes we have sown to the flesh we will reap to the flesh. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have made a habitual practice of sowing bad seed in this area. And what's coming to harvest is coming to harvest. You're going to have to reap that harvest. But the grace of God is that you can plant different seed. Now, you don't have to wait. The grace of God is that as that bad harvest comes to fruition and you deal with the bad taste in your mouth and you deal with the ramifications of the damage that you've caused, God says, now is the day to sow different seed. Now is the day to plant a different harvest. So we must first reap what we have sown, and we can then start planting better seed. Because God is not mocked. We will sow what we reap. Or reap what we sow, excuse me. So if you're tasting the fruit of righteousness this morning, if you're tasting the reward of truth in the innermost being, praise God. It's a mercy of God's grace to us. And then so whatever we've learned of death and life being in the power of the tongue, let us continue to strive to learn it all the more, to understand the nature and the power that is in words, both for good, for building up, and for tearing down. There's a time to tear down, and there is a time to build up. And with words, we can do both. So as we have seen the negative aspect, perhaps, of the command, I want to spend the remaining time with us to look toward the positive aspects. Because, of course, if it's not already obvious, if the negative side is to not bear false witness, then, of course, the positive command is then to bear true witness, is it not? To bear true witness. So we've looked at the heart. We've isolated the heart. We've isolated the internal problem. We've isolated what we must reckon with it. We must not blame it on other people. We must own it. We must mortify it. We must confess it. We must reap the harvest if we've planted bad seed, and we need to start planting different seed. But now I want to push application in light of the positive element of bearing true witness into the last three spheres, and that would be the home, the church, and the world. And I want to just make some simple application in all of those spheres that are distinct yet connected, because I think sometimes we sometimes wonder, so, so if, if bearing false witness produces this, then I want to bear true witness. So how do I go about that in my, in my marriage? How do I go about that in the church? How do I go about that in the world? So this is certainly not going to be a comprehensive approach, but it's a start. I want to look quickly at the home, and I want to do so by considering what might not seem so obvious now, but hopefully will be helpful. I want to consider Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to quickly turn there, we know it well, looking at verse 25 and 30. Because here Paul, of course, dealing with the subject of marriage, the mystery of marriage, say, how does this at all connect to bearing false witness well, if we're going to bear true witness, it needs to start, of course, in our homes. And I think as a married man, I know too well the sin of my mouth and the grievous effects that evil speech can have, both in your relationship with your wife and in the relationship you have in your home. The, the atmosphere of your home lives and dies with what you say as a man. Lives and dies, rises and falls. So what are we to do about this reality that we often encounter in our marriages and in our homes? And Paul says simply in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think quite simply, we have to, as men, understand that when defilement comes into the home through slander, gossip, evil speech, false report, we have to nip it in the butt. But if we don't flee from it ourselves, 
We will be the reason defilement runs rampant in our home, not our wife. As you see in the Garden of Eden, Eve was deceived by the serpent, the snake, the father of lies. He is called, interestingly, the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who twists Scripture and casts doubt upon the truth. But men must be unlike their first father, Adam, and be like their Lord Jesus Christ. Stand in the gap and speak truth over their wife, leading and covering her from the defilement and deception of the enemy. Men, we must first repent of the evil speech in our own hearts and homes, the defiling nature in which we slander others and in so doing coat our wife and children in filth. We must repent of that. We must take responsibility for it. And in turn, we must wash our wife with the clean and pure water of the word. We must do this. But we can only do it if we're washed ourselves. We can only do it if we're washing ourselves, cleaning our face, cleaning our mouth with the purity of God's word. And then we can do it and apply it faithfully to our families. This is a simple admonition, but it starts in the home, and it starts with understanding the nature of defilement, the nature of how speech can get out of hand, and the nature of the deceptiveness of the devil, how he is so willing and ready to bypass us to get to our kids, to get to our wife, to start their little gears thinking about all the wrong that's in the church and all the wrong that's in the world and all the, all the people that, uh, wh- whatever the situation might be, I mean, you can, you can fill in the blank. We must be quick to wash our women and our children in the word. And secondly, 1 Timothy 3.11 says also of the wives of those, particularly in church leadership, that they should not be slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Women should not be gossips, busybodies, talebearers. Instead, 1 Peter 3.4 says they are actually to possess a quiet and gentle spirit, which has an imperishable beauty and is precious in the sight of God. This is what should mark our homes. This is what needs to mark our homes. If we're going to succeed in obeying Jesus in the ninth commandment, it must start a home. Secondly, it of course will spill over, undoubtedly, into the church. So what do we do in that sphere? Because the homes will make up the church. We'll just turn the page over and look at Ephesians chapter 4. I love Ephesians chapter 4. It's meant a lot to me in my life, and I think as I consider the ramifications of evil speech, of bearing true witness, Ephesians 4 might be abundantly clear in a couple different places. I want to look first at verses 1 through 3, and then I want to spend a few minutes on 17 through 32. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Notice this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It says, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Powerful words right there, but we see clearly that we have to be a people that are zealous to not only walk worthy of the calling that we've been given, but to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and he tells us how in verse 2, with humility, gentleness, or meekness, meaning self-control, power under control, with patience, bearing with one another. Instead of bearing with falsehood, we bear up in love. We carry something entirely different. We carry each other instead of the sin we so easily see in each other. And then in verse 17 of the same chapter, he builds on this and and displays a powerful application of putting off the old and putting on the new. And many of us are so familiar with this, it's easy just to sort of gloss over it. But he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must... No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. 
And they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him, were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what does it mean to put off and put on? What does it mean to be renewed? Well, as, we've, as we do that, as we lay aside the old man, we reckon him to be dead, as Romans 6 tells us, and we put on by faith the garments of righteousness, and we don't bear up with lies. We don't tolerate falsehood. We don't put up with gossip and slander. We don't ingest the juicy morsel of flesh that it so often is for us. By the Word of God and by the washing of the water of the Word, we are renewing our minds to think rightly. And therefore, he says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Speak the truth with his neighbor. As I mentioned before, the reaction by some, the tendency by some with the ninth commandment is to say, well, I don't want to break it, so I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to stand up at work. I'm not going to get involved in conflict. I'm just going to kind of mind my business. I'm just going to kind of go to work, do my thing, be quiet. I'm going to go to church, do my thing, be quiet. I'm not going to get up in people's faces. I'm not going to confront anybody. I'm just going to kind of mind my business. The Bible says, no, that's the wrong approach. We need to speak the right words in the right way, and we do that by speaking the truth in love. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And he says, finally, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is very convicting. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Notice the progression there in verse 31. Often bitterness leads to wrath and anger and clamor and slander. Our stomach is hungry. We have, we, we want but what we don't have. We don't ask for it the right way, so we, we burn down our neighbor. Bitterness produces all of these things so often. It blows over into malice. He says, put it all away. Crucify it. Own it, deal with it, crucify it. And we have the grace of God to do it. The mercy of God is abundant to do this. And he says, lastly, in conclusion, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. Lastly, in closing, we go from the church and we push it out into the world. But I do want to quickly say, Galatians 5 tells us, as church members, that if we bite and devour one another, we ought to be careful that we are not consumed. So if we're going to be church members that love and build up, we need to understand that the other road leads to real death and real destruction. Truthfully, in the list of those sins which condemn a man to hell, lying is on the list. Slander, gossip. Lastly, the world, and I want to close in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we see the home, we see the church, we see the world. How do we bear witness to the truth? Well, quite simply, many places we could go here, many places we could go with all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just going to turn there. Bear with me. Verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us, 
spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. The little word there means hucksters. We're not hucksters of the truth. We're not peddlers. We're not salesmen. But what are we? We are men and women of sincerity. We are commissioned by God. We live in the sight of God, and we speak in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this must mark us as the people of God. This must mark us as we go into the world, as we are being led by Christ in triumphal procession. We are being led in victory. And indeed, as Paul says, we are to some who are perishing an aroma, a stench of death to death, but those who are being called to repentance by God's sovereign will, we are an aroma of life to life. But let your aroma, whatever it might be, be sincere. Live as though you are indeed commissioned by God, because indeed you are. Live in the sight of God, not in the sight of man, and speak the words of Christ, not your own. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reality that life and death are indeed in the power of the tongue, but we thank you that you've given us your true and life-giving words that are the antidote to all the chaos that we see both internally and outside. We pray, Lord, that we would not just wink at the chaos and make peace with the chaos, but that we would stand up to the chaos and learn not only in our homes and in our churches to speak the truth in love, but give us courageous hearts and courageous spirits to live in such a way that we are sincere all the way to the bottom and that we don't just live with good intentions, but that we live with truth that informs all that we do, that we live in such a way that we push the positive side of this commandment out to the corners of our lives, where we, instead of bearing false witness, we bear true witness. Lord, make this so in our midst, make this so in our hearts, make this so in our homes. We commit ourselves to you for it, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.